You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This episode will include graphic details of a crime and mentions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 4, The David Terry Trial. I remember it. I was 10 because I was born in 78. Our fifth grade teacher, she wasn't my fifth grade teacher. She was a fifth grade teacher at the school. And she went to go testify like a character witness or something, you know, just to give, I don't know, credence to David Shure as a stand-up guy. I don't know what she said. I've never read it. All I know is I was 10 years old and I knew where she really was. And that kind of knowledge was currency in the fifth grade classroom. And so (laughs) I remember, actually, I guess on the fifth grade playground, I remember being outside on the playground, being like, y'all, I really know where Miss Vaughn is, y'all. Like, I, I, you know, and I told it. And then when she got back the next day, oh, she came to my class and, I mean, they pulled me out in the hallway and she tore me a new one. And I remember her telling me, she goes, you had no right to tell people. She goes, all I'm trying to do is help your family. Like, she was like, and it's your family. Brother Terry's trial starts just over a year after the actual fire on September 19th of 1988. Prosecutors have given notice that they will seek the death penalty against John David Terry, who is charged with killing and beheading a church handyman and then setting fire to his church. The Emanuel Church of Christ won this Pentecostal at 522 Woodland Street. On this episode, I continue to help Sharon make sense of her childhood memories and fill in the blanks, the details that her family kept from her back then, because she was so young at the time. To start, after he was charged with this monstrous crime, David Terry pled not guilty. And with him being held in jail, preparing to fight these charges, at some point, his wife Brenda and daughter Amy leave Nashville and move back to Shelbyville to be closer to family and go to the local Emmanuel, where Sharon's dad was pastor. Can the church say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. the house of the Lord tonight. We thank you for his blessings. Thank you for this revival, how God has been blessing this week. And then the discussion was, you know, they're moving back, and y'all make sure and make Amy feel welcome because she's moving to a new town, and so much has happened to her. And sounds like they did make her feel welcome. That summer... Sharon says her, her sister Dee Dee, and Amy were thick as thieves. So I guess she kind of acted like a babysitter, but not really. Let's see, she graduated in 93, and I graduated in 96, so she's three years older than us. And even though in the background, this really dark story was unfolding in the courts back in Nashville, in Shelbyville, Sharon, her sister Dee Dee, and Amy, their church life is bumping. They start singing together, and they form their very own little gospel group. They just called us the girls. They'd be like, girls, y'all got a song for us? Y'all want to come up and sing? And so we would.
they would call us up. Like at church, we didn't have a program. There was no, you know, program that they handed out. So daddy or somebody conducted in service would basically just be like, you got a song for us? And in all their years of singing together, in their teens, going to church together, growing up together, Sharon says that she never talked with Amy about her dad, about the fire, about any of it. So, according to newspaper archives and court records, there was a bit of drama that played out a few months before the David Terry trial even started, when suddenly, a local state court appointed him with a brand new legal team. Circuit Judge Walter Kurtz agreed last month to allow attorneys Seth Norman and Jay Norman, whom John David Terry had hired last summer, to withdraw from the case. The Normans gave their reasons for wanting out of the case in a closed-door meeting with Kurtz. Nashville attorneys Lionel Barrett and Michael Terry were appointed yesterday to defend Pentecostal Minister John David Terry on murder and arson charges. I'm Michael Terry. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived here for, for several decades, and I'm a lawyer. That's David's attorney, Michael Terry. No relation. Fortunately, I've had interesting cases during my career as a lawyer. This was one of them. And I'm thrilled that he's agreed to share with us his extremely valuable insights into this crime and his former client. When David left after the crime occurred for two days, he came back on a motorcycle. And he wanted to retain two lawyers, a father-son team, and he put the motorcycle down uh, as a deposit on their fees. And that motorcycle was evidence. So by accepting the motorcycle from him, they had taken control of evidence. And that was a conflict that ended their uh, representation. Also, right around the time that Michael Terry took on the case, David Terry also changes his story. Now he's saying that, yes, it's still true that he had invited the victim, James Matheny, on this early morning fishing trip. But instead of this scenario he first described, where Matheny attacks him with a two-by-four and while defending himself, he kills Matheny, instead, David Terry now says he had been terribly depressed to the point of suicide and that somehow he found himself in the church loft shooting Matheny in the back of the head with a thirty-eight pistol, but thinking he was killing himself. And he certainly uh, had a depressive mood. His mental health analysis was that he suffered from major depression. And his mood 
was always depressed. Of course, after I met him, he was always defending this crime. And this was the hook that they hung their entire defense on. What explains this conduct? What explains this type of calculated homicide? So our answer was uh, mental illness, severe mental illness. So his mental state was our defense, was what we offered and promoted and tried to use to uh, save his life. Now, you know, you walk down the street and say, tell somebody he has a depression, they say, big deal. But especially in 1980, they would say, so what? But in fact, that is a serious mental illness diagnosis, and he did suffer from that. I never saw any sense of anger or violence in David Terry. He was kind of a laid, not laid back. He was an anxious man, but he was, he spoke softly. He appeared to be uh, gentle. He's a big guy, bald guy, but I never, never saw him raise his voice or appear to be angry. He was likable. Did you have much interaction with his family? Uh, yes, his wife stuck with him, Brenda. And she, despite the details of the crime, she stayed with her man and uh, was supportive of him. His brother, who was a military officer, was supportive. Did the congregation or, or, you know, other leaders from Emmanuel Church of Christ get involved with the case at, at all? You know, much interaction with those people? Yes, they did. And they got involved on the other side. So after the crime was committed and David was uh, indicted, the bishop and most of the members of the church turned on David and... Um, became part of the prosecution team. Of course, one of the facts of the case is that David had sold some church property that they valued, and uh, that was part of their, their motivation to uh, become part of the prosecution. He didn't have any support from church members. And it wasn't only that Emmanuel found out Brother Terry had sneakily sold some church property 
and misappropriated the funds just once. In the lead-up to the trial, the prosecution would reveal that he had also been straight up and regularly stealing money from the church going back years. And curiously, just two months before the fire, Brother Terry had also quietly spent some of that money on several life insurance policies. Policies that would pay out to his wife Brenda and his children if and when he died. And how about those early rumors? Let's get into this again. These rumors that cult activity was somehow involved in this case. Do you remember anything about that? Did it come up during the trial? No, no. I mean, if you want to talk cults, we can talk cults, but there wasn't any uh, satanic cult here. There was a cult. The, The church was a cult. Now, I don't personally think of Emmanuel Church of Christ being a cult itself, but this is Michael Terry's opinion of Emmanuel and the greater Christian church itself. We touched on this briefly in our telephone conversations, but did, you know, being so involved in this case make you think about your own beliefs and faith at all? Well, I I hesitate to describe myself as an atheist because I, I, I think that's too mild. I, I'm absolutely certain there is no creator God. I I love that, that it's that it's too mild, because for so many people, atheist is practically a swear word. It's 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 just nonsensical for me to um, accept any longer any notion that there's a creator God. But I um, I I think that it would be good. (laughs) And I'm not getting younger. I would have thought during my lifetime that more progress would have been made in the sense that uh, people would begin to let go of the uh, nonsense of creator God religions and start in different directions. And I, I think I think that's happened. I think it's- been- It's definitely happening. I mean, I think I'm a great example of someone who was raised in a church after a generation and generation of that going on and it's broken in me and I'm not raising my kids as Christians. I'm creating them, you know, raising them as completely different kind of human beings. And I know a lot of my peers are the same. And I, and I'm, I too, am an example. I've raised three sons and without religion, they have no religion in their life. I have four grandchildren now. They won't, they won't have religion in their life. They're different kind of human beings. You know, yeah. they never had to waste any time sorting through all that. Right. Look at me, I'm 42 and I'm still trying to, you know, take it apart. Yeah. When you look at religion and David Terry and and what what does it say about religion? To me, it what I saw on the leadership side of that small denomination is the same thing that I see in the in the leadership of the major religions in the world, and particularly today, the televangelists, who seem to be doing nothing but taking advantage of other people. And I think that that was going on in the small denomination. And uh, it just seems consistent with, with, with religion, which offers hope and everlasting life 
but basically takes advantage of, of its members for the people who have the power and control, whether they're ayatollahs or popes or evangelical ministers. So of course this crime took place in a church and David Terry himself was a pastor. So I'm just curious about, you know, did belief or religion come up at all during the trial? Well, David, David Terry's life was that he was a, an evangelical minister and the people in his congregation were evangelical followers, small congregation, but very fundamental. I mean, the, the prosecution, of course, in this case, would use at every opportunity the fact that he was a minister against him. This wasn't just a street criminal. This was a minister who did this. So that, that wasn't a good thing for David. To that extent, religion, religion came up. When it came to his own religious upbringing and beliefs, Michael tells me he was himself raised Catholic. But during his college years, through his own curiosity and with the guidance of a professor, he came to believe that there is no God. Since then, I have learned and, and, and believed strongly that religion is responsible for most, many, let's say many, if not most, of the problems on this planet. But it's not, not just organized religion, but it's the tribal cult tendencies of the human race. Human beings are innately tribal, and Michael uses sports fans as one of the most accepted examples of this in our society. You want to put your favorite player's jersey on and paint your face? Sure you do. Because it feels great to be part of a group. Cheering on your team, a warrior for your tribe, us and them, good versus evil. But a lot of these tendencies to, to tribe up, to get into a group, to become a member of a cult, are harmful to other people. And religion has been there, been there ready to accept people into their groups, giving them a tribe, giving them a cult, giving them an identity, promising them heaven, taking their money, and telling them who to hate. And the religious side of this also plays out uh, with James Matheny. I think Matheny and his wife and the other people who were victims in this congregation would not have been there except where they trusted this religious group to make their lives better for them. And it, it, it did not. You remember much about, you know, hearing about the life of James Matheny and who this guy was? Yeah. 
James Matheny was a person who had a very, very difficult life. He had problems with drugs and alcohol. He had been in trouble. Uh, his wife, who who stuck with him and was very important part of the prosecution, deservedly so, stuck with him. And she had she had gotten warrants on Matheny before for for his behavior, but she was a, a church person. She believed in churches and religions, and so she got. James into this congregation with her. And he hired James as a handyman at the church. So I think it's fair to say that James Matheny's life at the time he lost it was probably as good as it had been in, in, in a long time. He had a job, his wife was sticking with him. He had founded a tribe, a church to be a member of. And, uh, and then this happened. Metro homicide detective Robert Moore saw enough in his initial inspection of a burning East Nashville church to doubt that the headless body in the attic was Pastor John David Terry. Homicide detective Robert Moore, another person to take the stand. The body appeared at first to be that of the pastor, killed by someone who had broken into Emmanuel Church of Christ, one is Pentecostal, 522 Woodland Street, around midnight on June 15, 1987. Robbed the preacher and then set fire to the building to conceal the crime. But Moore testified yesterday, he wondered why there were no signs of forced entry to the building, why valuable electronic equipment was left undisturbed in the sanctuary. He's talking about all the guitars and stuff, because <laughs> we're Pentecostal. <laughs> um, and why the decapitated body. Detective Moore also wondered why James Matheny's body had been stripped down to just underwear, but still wearing a belt around the waist. A belt that his family testified was not his. It was a belt with a letter T buckle on it. He also testified there was an axe found near the body. That's crazy. It was quickly apparent that an axe found near the body had not been used to remove the head. Right forearm and patches of skin on both shoulders, Moore said. The cuts through the flesh were very straight and precise, Moore said, just as if you were filleting meat. A pattern of saw marks was visible on the bones, the detective said. The body probably would have been burned beyond recognition, except for the fact that neighbors quickly called the fire department and water from firefighters' hoses poured through an attic window and splashed off a wall directly onto the body and the pile of scrap lumber covering it, Moore said. This area, even though it would ultimately have been the hottest part of the church, was very well protected, the police detective said. Moore said he had enough doubts about the identity of the body that he told Terry's wife and children who were waiting outside the still smoldering church early on the morning of June 16, 1987, put your feelings on hold. On the stand, Nashville detective Robert Moore also revealed to anyone who didn't know already that Brother Terry along with being a pastor and Emmanuel's associate bishop overseer, he was also a part-time butcher. So when he was slicing, he was just muscle memory from, I guess, 
his days as a butcher cutting meat. That's terrifying. God, isn't that graphic? That is really graphic. Wow. Part-time meat cutter. Brenda says David's behavior changed in 1984. Have you ever heard this kind of stuff before? No. So Brenda testified that to his changing behavior during the period of 1984 to 1987, she stated that he initially experienced intense mood swings and over time he became very withdrawn, gained a lot of weight, and was unable to perform sexually. And back in 84... David would have been 40 years old. Well, that's a milestone birthday. Really good point. That's a very milestone birthday where you measure everything. It was also around this time that the evidence clearly shows that Brother David first started squirreling away money from the church. Over the years, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Notably, This is also shortly after his mom, Pauline Terry, passes away. And according to testimony, Brother Terry was extremely close to his mother. So much so that she was, before her death, his, quote, only confidant. Now, before we wrap this episode... Sharon wanted to touch base about where she's at with talking to her family about all of his stuff. And she says in her most recent conversation with her dad, Emmanuel Pastor Ron Adams, for the very first time, they've actually talked about Brother David's mental health leading up to the crime. And when Sharon asked her dad if anyone in the church knew that he had been depressed, her dad told her a story that she's never heard before. The story was about her dad running into David at the tabernacle in 1986, so a year before the fire, when they were both dropping the girls off at camp in Lebanon. And he said that he came, that David came in from the dorms into the church and said, uh, Brother Ronnie, can I, I talk to you for a minute? And Daddy said, yeah, Brother David, yeah. And uh, that David said to him, I've been watching you for several years, and I just wanted to let you know that you have a consistency that a lot of young ministers don't. And I just want to let you know that I see that in you and was just really bragging on him. And, and daddy was like, okay. And daddy said, I had no idea at the time that he was struggling with all of that. You know, Sharon's dad followed that story up with another one too, about running into David while dropping the girls off at camp. But this time It was a story from the following year, that summer of 1987, just a few days before the fire. And so he said, I was dropping you girls off, and he was there, and we were in the cafeteria area. And so he said, hey, Brother David, next week, would you honor us by preaching one night? You want to deliver a sermon one night? And he said, David got this funny look on his face and got quiet for a bit and said, no, I, I appreciate it, but I'm going to have to decline. I have other plans. And Daddy said, I felt something, like I felt um, a chill or something. He said, I felt 
something, but just didn't, he was like, oh, well, all right, okay, well, maybe next time. Or if your plans change, let me know. David was his superior, and so he didn't feel like he could say something there, you know? And especially back then, that was late 80s. And the other was, oh, I just, that's their business. I don't need to get in their business, you know? And that's when Sharon's conversation with her dad turned to regret. And then I said, but daddy, at the time, and even to this day, it's still outside of the box, like just not normal for me to go, you know, Tara, you've been working an awful lot. Like, how are you emotionally? Are you doing okay? I just wanted to check in with you, you know, to, to be that honest with somebody and talk about mental health. And in talking candidly about Brother Terry for the first time like this with her dad, it's also allowed Sharon the chance to talk about her own faith and spiritual journey. And where I am now in my belief is not at all how I've been raised. I am not churched anymore. I am unchurched. And so I was able to, 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 to talk with them about gut feelings and intuition. And, and I said things like, call it whatever you want to call it, the universe, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, you know, whatever. And they used that same terminology with me, which was very respectful and kind and not at all what I was accustomed to. So that's what I wanted to tell you was in that particular conversation, it was the first time that they have been open with me in that way. So that was huge. Up next, on Heaven Bent. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, more on the history of female leadership in Emmanuel Church of Christ, how it shifted back to men after Nina's death, and how this legacy is really complicated by the presence of deep-rooted misogyny. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. And still to come, this season. When a minister kills somebody, cuts their head off, and, and burns the church down, it's big news. Will Brother Terry avoid the death penalty? An ad in Soldier of Fortune in early 1987 made him believe he could begin a new life with the name of a dead person. How to get lost, how to disappear. It was something that began to feed a person looking for an escape. 